Uh, if you would take out your program, and there's some notes to, I'm going to have you follow along this morning. I'm going to read from one of my theo, favorite theologians, Dr. Seuss. Have you ever heard of the Grinch who stole Christmas? I'm going to read just a couple of pages. But they kind of frame on the front and the back end of uh, just uh, what I'm sensing for Christmas. It says, but the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. Did not what? Well, the Grinch hated Christmas. The whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows uh, the reason why. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were just a little too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. I don't know about you, but growing up, Christmas wasn't really the, uh, while I, I, I looked forward to it, it wasn't exactly uh, on my dad's radar as him and I, you know, lived together. After I became a Christ follower when I was about uh, almost, almost 18, the meaning and the richness of Christmas took on a whole new focus for my life. I have to tell you, from that time on, I really began to even more so look forward to Christmas because I realized this. Without Christ in Christmas, what do you have? Mass. Yeah. It doesn't mean much. And so I made this determination that from that time on that I'd become a Christ follower, that my family, my life would be all about focusing on Christ at Christmas. And I have to tell you, you know, what I do is I celebrate this season. I love every part of of the season. Now, over the years, the 22 years that I've almost been here, some people get a little bit concerned uh, about my over-exuberance for the season and the focus that the church puts on it. They'll ask me, do you think you're kind of overdoing it? And you know what I usually say? Oh, if you only knew how much more I wanted to do. <laughs> and it's really true. But I understand that some people don't see in this season the things that I probably see. Many of you are really concerned about the over-commercialization of the season, aren't you? And you would say, well, aren't you? I would say, hmm, a bit, a little bit. But just as concerned about the over-commercialization of it as I also get a little bit concerned about some who have this sense of super-spirituality who bemoan and blast the season with nothing more than a spirit of holy humbugging. Some are concerned with the traditions that they can track back, some of them, to pagan origins. Others, you know, there are some people who just seem to lean into conspiracy theories. You know, there's uh, recently, we're still hearing about JFK conspiracy theories. There's conspiracy theories for the 9-11 attacks. And yes, there's conspiracy theories about Santa Claus. Yeah, Santa Claus, think about it. Hear me. I mean, listen, this guy running around in a little red suit, special powers, take the end out of the middle, drop it to the end, what do you got? Satan. You think I'm kidding, don't you? That's because you've never heard it from this platform. But there's a lot of people that do. 
or they get really holy. Well, I, I'm not going to lie to my kids. I'm not going to tell them that there's a Santa because then they won't ever be able to trust anything that I say. Really? You kidding me? When I was, I was playing basketball and we would travel up to Washington a lot of times, and I had a friend, my best friend in high school, moved up there. And uh, he, married, uh, into a, he married a woman that already had two kids, young kids, young, young, young kids. So I met them on one of the trips at this restaurant. And we're sitting at this table. And, and, and you have to understand, this is just a, uh, this is a kid that we used to sit in church together. And I've told you a number of times how we'd sit there, and he'd always want to go forward at the altar call. And I'd always say, no, 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 can't do it. I'm not ready. And, uh, and I always wondered if he ever come to Christ. Well, he did. But I, he took this really conservative way. And hear me, listen, hear me. If you don't agree with some of the stuff I'm saying, that's all right, okay? This isn't biblical. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 when he said, you know something, this is, really isn't from God. I just want to give you some perspective, okay? But he said, to, we were sitting there at dinner, and it was at Christmas time, and I looked at his two little kids. It couldn't have been more than two or three or two and four, somewhere around there. And I said, what's Santa going to bring you? And they got these big eyes, and they yelled out, we don't believe in Santa. And I looked at him, and I go, well, I do. No, I didn't. I just, uh, I just said, oh, okay, I'm stupid. And, um, and I just thought, oh, wow, okay. I, can I just tell you, I like Santa. Always have, always will. Within reason, of course. See, I, I, I got to tell you, I haven't seen any kids that have been warped because their parents led them to believe in Santa for a few years. Now, if you're a parent that still, or an adult that still believes in him, you're warped. But, sorry, Chris and <laughs> Dylan, I, I didn't mean to spoil it for you young guys. But I hope that maybe in the next couple of weeks there'll be some things that maybe would just enlarge your thinking. And if you deal with some people, maybe you're here, please don't, you know, I'm not trying to be offensive. I love this season. And I see Christmas, I believe a lot of different things in it. And that's kind of what I want to encourage you to make sure that you do as you're trimming your tree, as you're putting up lights, as you're eating different things, as you're spending hopefully not too much money. The first thing, this is what I see. I see Christmas presents. I see the true Christmas presents. Don't miss the spelling and meaning uh, that goes beyond this simple play on words. My desire, loved ones, for this season is that we as a church and we as individuals, that we would experience Christ's presence as never before. That the reality of who he is and what he has done for each one of us would be clear. Matthew 121 and 23, uh, part of the statement in there is one of my favorites. It says, Emmanuel, God with us. This great truth marks our calendars today. Not only did Christ create mankind, but he came to be with them. He came to spend time with them, to, be, uh, to, to give his life a sacrifice for us so that he could redeem humanity. And understand, Emmanuel is simply a title, a descriptive word that is spoken of him, but it was never spoken to him directly. We never see in the scriptures, and we probably never happened where anybody said, hey, Emmanuel, could you make me a little five-by-five five table here? Or, uh, you know, could you, could you refinish my chairs over here? We, we never see that in scripture because this is simply 
a descriptive title of who he was in his ministry. Jesus Christ, God with us. John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. For a short time, he left the glories and the goodness and the grandeur of heaven. Why? So that mankind could see Jesus Christ, could literally see the face and the grace of God. Hear me, God, Jesus has always been an among us, with us God. What what do you mean? We'll go back to Genesis 3. We believe that it was a Christophany, a a, a uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ who walked with Adam and Eve in the perfection of the garden. He was with them. He walked with them, talked with them. He came to be with people at the first advent, celebrating this season when he was birthed in a stable. It's still true today when his word and his life, loved ones, are simply incarnated in your life, in my life, and every day when we live it out, what he is doing in us and through us. He's with us. He makes his life. He resides within us. And then here's the kicker. This is the great thing. It says in Revelation 21, about verse 4 and 5, at the climax of history, when the new heavens are made and the new heavens and the new earth are made, There's almost like this this announcement from heaven where God says, and I will be with them. I will be their God. And guess what? They will be with me, my people. So we have this incredible God. His presence is always with us and will always forever be with us. I love what the psalmist King David said in Psalm 1611. He said, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand, at this time, in this place, this Christmas, loved ones, it's all about this pursuing God who is continually coming after us, looking for us, being with us, our family, our friends. Why? So that he can bring his presence to us and we can experience the joy of Christ. The season reminds us with this presence that he came to relate to us. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, his name is Jesus, who was tempted in every way. He was tested in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. I love this about Jesus, and sometimes we forget about it, that he came as the God-man. And he was tempted and tested in every way that we have or ever will be. Some of you have probably had a difficult year this past year. And maybe in this season right now, today's hard. You feel alone. Emmanuel knows. He knows what it's like to be rejected by men, forsaken by friends, betrayed by people. Maybe you've had a difficult time financially. Emmanuel knows. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't have a salary. Maybe you've had a difficult time. You're hurting physically. Emmanuel knows because he's experienced the greatest pain and agony in his body that you will ever know or experience. He knows. 
Maybe you've had hopes and dreams this past year that you would hope would come about, but they haven't materialized. He knows. Psalm 34, 18 says this, The Lord is near to those who are discouraged. He saves those who have lost all hope. I love that. The Lord is near. He's not left you. Why? Because he's Emmanuel, God with us. He encourages me in disappointing times. He's always reminding me. He's always reminding you, loved ones. You will never go through anything alone because he is with you, because he is Emmanuel, God with us. See, that's what I see at Christmas time. I never forget that the whole purpose was for God to come and to show me his life, his grace, his face. Because so many people up until the time of Jesus coming were fearful and afraid of the God who was out there. And God says, I'm coming to be with you right here. Christmas lights. When I see all the Christmas lights, the colorful, beautiful lights of Christmas, I'm reminded that's one of the major motifs of the scripture. It's one of the big themes. Jesus is the light. John 1, 9 says, there was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Every one of us loved ones, every person in this world. A lot of people say, well, how, well what's going to happen to the people over in the rainforest that never hear the gospel? They will hear it. I don't know how. But it says every man, every woman, every person will experience the light of Christ. He lights every man. And to whatever degree, I don't understand it, I don't know it, but understand this. Nobody will be in hell that hasn't received the light of Christ in some way that they could respond to who Jesus Christ that we celebrate this season is. See, this image of light dispelling darkness is central to our understanding in the Incarnation. When Jesus was presented at the temple shortly after his birth, Luke tells us that the aged Simeon recognized him as the child of what? As the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. It's the same today, loved ones, 2,000 years later. Literally, he is the hope of all people. And he comes to bring light, to show us a new way of life and to live. Author Robert Fulgham tells about how while attending lectures and classes at the end, uh, a speaker would often finish and they would say, do you have any questions? And he'd often respond kind of half jokingly, as, well, what is the meaning of life? Well, he would always get a good chuckle from people as they were picking up their belongings and getting ready to exit the classroom or the lecture hall. One day to his surprise, Fulgham received an answer to this question of what is the meaning of life? And it came from Dr. Alexander Papadaris, who was a Greek philosopher, and uh, he had founded a learning center on the island of Patmos. When Fulgham popped his question, people chuckled, as they always had, and prepared to leave, as they always had. But Dr. Papadaris raised up his hand, and he said, wait, I'd like to answer that question. He took from his pocket a small mirror, and he began to hold it up and, and, to, and to show. He said, you know, during growing up during the war, World War II, my family was very, very poor, and I didn't have anything and no toys. And one day, I 
found this old, abandoned, broken down uh, German motorcycle. And the mirror was broken, a bunch of different pieces. And he said, I tried to put them together to make a full mirror, but I couldn't. So he says, what I did is I took the biggest piece, which is this one right here, and I began to just simply rub, rub it against the rock so I could round it off. And this is what I have, and I carry it with me everywhere. He said, for me, it almost become like a game where I could get light into these most inaccessible places that I could find. As I moved into manhood, I really grew to understand that this was not simply a child's game that I played, but it really became a strong metaphor for what I might do in my life. With what I've given, I could reflect light in dark places of this world. Into the dark and black places in the hearts of people, I can help bring some change. And with that, Dr. Papadaris, he, he began to shine just perfectly from, the, from the, 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 the sunlight rays coming through the window. And he focused it on this before him. And he said, to me, that's what I've learned to be the key meaning of life. See, loved ones, don't we understand this metaphor of light against the background of darkness that the Bible so often talks about? It really does. The Bible, the Scripture points to this double reality concerning darkness. First, darkness points to our human ignorance. Those in the dark who are apart from Christ, they simply lack knowledge about this God that loves them. And to the Jewish mind, this metaphor was very significant and prominent and had application to the Gentile world. Anybody that was not a Jew was considered a Gentile. And they realized that they were in the dark because they had not received revelation of the Torah, revelation of the prophets, and the written revelation of God that was coming and being developed. And we understand today still, there are millions of people who dwell in darkness. We who have received such a great light are now called what? To be light. To be the light of the world. To be the light that reflects Christ Jesus to people all around us in our relational orbit. It's so easy to forget that. That we have experienced this, this great light as Gentiles now. But there's a second part. John 8, 12 says this, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, so if you follow me, you won't be stumbling through the darkness, for living light will flood your path. And that's so personal, I believe, for all of us, because when you find your way, you don't have to live in the dark. The crevices and the closets, the hidden areas of our lives, those things, those are the places that so often trip us up. What happens? Jesus comes and says, this is what I do. I want to come. I want to reflect my life into those dark areas. I want to expose them to you, for you, so you can get healing in them and through them because my life of light has come. Ephesians 5.9 says, The light produces in people all that is good and right and true. See, when we allow Christ to to fill our life and his spirit to, to envelop us. It brings out the best in you. It'll bring out the best in me. He can do that for you. 
He can do for you, loved ones, what years, what maybe years of counseling and therapy and hope could never do. And I'm not against those things. But ultimately, Jesus comes and the light of the world exposes everything that needs to be exposed in a healthy, growing way. I love the light of Christ because it's forever reflecting on me showing me areas of darkness in this life. Well, Christmas gifts. I love Christmas gifts. I used to not like them. I always felt really uncomfortable getting gifts. I'd say, no, thank you. Don't get me anything. Today, get me something. No. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. But I've become much more comfortable with gifts. I suppose when people give them to you, the best thing to do is to simply say thank you. Isn't it interesting? Sometimes we have our wants, 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 wants. And uh, there's a big difference between what we want and sometimes what we need. These are some wishes. I got two pages of them, but I'm only going to probably do three or four of them with kids locally who have uh, requested what they want for Christmas. Dear Santa, I am eight years old. Every Christmas I usually get socks. But I want to change. I want that to change. Please, Santa, no more socks. Please, 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 please. I beg of you. Sincerely, Daniel of Antioch. Dear Santa, if I have been naughty this year, I'm very sorry. That is a repentant heart, loved ones. That's, that's what repentance is, the beginning place. I would like a skateboard with blue, hot, red flames and my name right in the middle. My mom wants soap, and my dad wants geek stuff. Love, Dustin of Concord. That wasn't Dustin. It was, it was Kelly of Walnut Creek. Dear Santa, I don't want anything for Christmas. All I want is for you to make my parents stop smoking. I love my parents. They are very nice to me. Dear Santa, my father has life in prison, but I'm still blessed to be here, thanks to my mother and God in my life. I'm asking for a 360 Xbox, but if not, I'll expect whatever you have to offer. Thank you very much. Patrick from Berkeley. See, aren't those precious? See, some of those kids, they, they have this understanding of uh, just want, 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 and then there's others that say, you know, this is what I could use. When I pick up a gift, I see them around the tree. I'm reminded of a couple of things. First and foremost, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, underscore that, underline it, highlight it. That is the message of Christmas. God is the greatest gift giver of all the most extravagant, the most loving, the one that knows every need that we have. 2 Corinthians 9.16 says this, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What's that gift? He gave us his son, Jesus Christ, to all humanity so that we could live with God. We could relate to God. We could see God for who he is in all of his love, his compassion, his largeness of heart. 
And while Jesus was coming as the God-man, there is a major difference. He, he didn't succumb to sin and failure as we have. What does that tell us? It tells us we needed help. We needed a gift from God, and it came through Jesus Christ, and it's called grace. Ephesians 2 says this, For the grace you have for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. This indescribable gift, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't purchase it, you can't work for it. You simply, like any good gift, you get to receive. That's the grace of Jesus Christ unto salvation. But, there's a second gift that I think about. See, there's the ultimate gift that God gives us through Jesus Christ, and it's called grace. It leads to salvation and a relationship with the God who came to reveal God to us. But every one of you sitting in this room, hear me. You have been given gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Ephesians talks about these gifts that God gives each one of us in our lives. And some of you have unwrapped them, and you're continually using them for the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords. And some of you, you've got gifts and skills that have been deposited into your life by this loving God. And you really haven't unwrapped them yet. And maybe this Christmas would be the time that maybe you need to, maybe you've never unwrapped the gift of salvation that Jesus has given to you, where you've said yes to a relationship with him. Maybe others of you, a number of you, haven't started unwrapping the gifts and the skills of your life to begin to use them for this God who come for you, who loves you. And maybe in the next couple weeks, you'll open a card, Christmas card, or you'll open a gift. And first and foremost, remember the gift that Jesus gave you of salvation. Secondly, ask yourself this, have I unwrapped the gift that God has given me? I do, I think about that. You've heard me say it before, and I say it to a lot of people. I sometimes think how this little kid grew up in a, but went through all this stuff with his family, grew up in this little trailer park, this little trailer. Nobody in their family had really an orient, except for my grandparents, and then they, they passed away. And, but they got me started. And I think about just these simple gifts that God has deposited into my life and somehow made them larger and greater and better than I could ever imagine. I didn't say good. I just said better than I could ever imagine as this little kid who grew up in this little 8 by 45 trailer. And that today, 
the greatest gift that I have is not only a relationship with Jesus Christ, but I get to do what I do. I get to do it with you. I get to do it with other churches. I have been gifted. And I pray that this season you would make sure that you unwrap whatever gift it is, because many of you think, oh, I've got nothing to offer. Oh, yes, you do. I used to, I, uh, the only, probably the only way I got through high school was playing basketball, because I had to get grades. And then I, I told a few people this, but then I thought I wasn't smart enough to go on to college until I had this job where I had to work crazy long hours and I finally said I don't care how much money I make I don't care how dumb I think I am I'm going to college and that was the beginning of where I begin to see God develop some of these gifts and I say that to you to encourage you to say don't diminish how you see you begin to see yourself and your gifting through the lens of what God can do for it is never too late to start and to believe. Christmas trees. <laughs> I love Christmas trees. We used to have one uh, in our sanctuary. Now we have like, I don't know, we got three or four or five. We probably still have some under the stage. Look at this picture of this Christmas tree up here. This is the one that is in Trina's in my bedroom. You thought I was kidding you, didn't you? That's the one, seven-footer. Uh, there's another one. This is the one that's in our living room. Those have now been up for two weeks. I love Christmas trees. What do I see when I see a Christmas tree? Well, there's a major theme that I see. But I, did you know there's a lot of people who do, a lot of Christians who have a war against Christmas trees? Have you ever heard those people? I'm not here to argue or to, you know, kind of, you know, develop some kind of theological axe and grind it with him. But this is where they get it. If you have your Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet. He was called the wailing prophet because he always cried. And he's the one prophet that we could never find one convert. People didn't change. They just, they just wanted to follow their own ways. And so Jeremiah, he, he's preaching at these people. And this is what he, one of the sermons that he has. And he, because the, God's people at this time, they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't return to God. They simply wanted to follow the pagan people and customs of that time. The Assyrians were on the decline. The Babylonians were on the incline along with the Egyptians. And they were kind of tired of this God thing. And so they wanted to follow these, these different nations. And, and, and Jeremiah is just trying to keep them back on track. And so here's one of his talks. And he says, chapter 10, verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord is spoken to you, house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the way of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. He's talking there about horoscopes and charting of horoscopes. 
He says, for the customs of the people are worthless. Someone cuts down a tree from the forest. It is worked by the hands of a craftsman with a chisel. He decorates it with silver and gold. It is fastened with hammer and nails so that it won't totter. Like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, and they cannot do any good. Lord, there is no one like you. You are great. Your name is great in power. You should not fear. Who should not fear you? King of the nations. It is what you deserve. For among all the wise people of the nations, among all the kingdoms, there is no one like you. These idols are both senseless and foolish, instructed by worthless idols made of wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. And and from the hands of a goldsmith, the works of a craftsman, their clothing is blue and purple, all the work of skilled artisans. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and eternal God. The earth quakes at his wrath, and the nations cannot endure his rage. Now, some of you are thinking, well, PT, that sure sounds like what we do. Really? Perhaps so little, but I don't put silver and gold on our trees, literal silver and gold. I don't get out astrological charts and begin to see what's going to take place and happen. I don't treat our tree or trees like a god or an idol. I mean, just think here. It's really the picture like a Uh, you would have seen an adorned and gold and silver totem pole where it was really chiseled. It wasn't left as a tree. It was chiseled like a totem pole. And so they would get out their astrological charts and they would set them up according to the tree and they'd dance naked around them. Can I just tell you, the Rileys don't do that. (laughs) And and please, I would prefer you not go there either. I... uh, we understand the tree probably has a little broader, better spiritual significance. I'm not here. I am not going to war on Christmas trees. That's the Old Testament. That's talking about idol worship. I don't know of anybody that, I mean, it may sound like I have kind of idol worship of trees. I really don't. I just love them. See, many historians tie the celebration to to the tree back to the German Christians of the 16th century, beginning with none less than one of the greatest scholars and minds of Christendom, Martin Luther, the great reformer. They believed that he was the first one that brought in an evergreen tree during the Advent and Christmas season. And they began to see these trees as a symbol of Christ and his everlasting life and his everlasting hope that brings the people and reminds them that as they brought these trees in, And these evergreens are pointed up. It points to heaven, reminding everybody of the salvation that came from Christ at that scene. The trees are significant in the Bible, love them. See, in the very beginning of man's history, we see the tree in the Garden of Eden, where after disobeying in sin and eating from the forbidden tree, death was introduced into mankind, into life for the very first time. And we begin to see very quickly, we understand as you unpack it, that our sin kills us spiritually. It separates us from God. God shut down the garden so they couldn't eat of the the tree of life any longer and stay eternally damned. 
Our sin kills us socially. That's what messes up our relationships with others and messes up our marriage because we're sinful, we're selfish, and it's got to be dealt with. Our sin kills us personally. It messes us up emotionally. That's why so many of us have so much junk going on. A lot of times it's because we really haven't dealt with these sin issues. You remember the story of Snow White? Beautiful person who ate poisoned apple given to her by a jealous queen and she went to sleep no one could wake her up not even her seven vertically challenged friends who she hung out and ran with they couldn't help her she was stuck no one could do anything until what an enchanted a prince who was enchanted by her beauty and fell in love with her came along and awoke her with her and then she realized this is what I created for in this man. See, that's a powerful parable and picture of what happens when we neglect our spiritual being. We don't respond to Jesus. The real part of us really is dead asleep in sin because of Adam's sin and him disobeying in the garden and taking the forbidden fruit of the tree. Romans 5. 1 Corinthians tells us that what courses through us is that same strain of sin, and it works into us. We're in this fallen, dead state, and our spirit is asleep. (laughs) But Romans 5 says this, while we were yet sinners, still dead in our sins, we have this prince. The Bible calls him the prince of We call him Emmanuel, God with us. He's known as Jesus who comes. And he's so enchanted by us, his creation, that he literally bends down and kisses us with the grace of his love and his life to awaken our spirit within and to touch us. Some of you are thinking, well, why, why, why would God forbid from the tree and give them an option anyway. Well, because God is love. Love is always, 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 hear me, always, based on a choice. If you divorce, it's because you stopped loving. If you leave someone, it's because you stopped loving. And God says, I will give my creation the choice to love, to accept, or to reject. You see, if he didn't give us that choice, you know what? We would simply be automatons who basically walk in lockstep with what we had to do. But God says, that's not the way it's going to be. Every person will get to choose this love. So, Father God, the essence of our love is that he gives creation his choice and freedom to say, yes, God, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want to trust your ways. I want to move from my own personal rebelliousness. And it's the same for everybody in this room right now. The same choice that Adam made. Will I do what God says? Will I respond to God? Except today we have another tree. That we respond to. And every time I walk up 
around and I see different trees at different times and I am reminded, oh, these trees are beautiful. I love them. The light of Jesus. The decor, the gifts, the things that Jesus brings to my life. But I never forget the ugliness of another tree. See, this tree was hewn from a tree called the cross. And see, that's why Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, so he could live a sinless life. First Peter, the disciple, one of the closest disciples of Jesus, said it this way in First Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sin, having fallen asleep in our spirit to sins, now we can live for righteousness because of his stripes you have been healed. And the healing only starts when you've been brought to life because you've been kissed by the grace of Jesus Christ. The glory of the cross that was hewn from a tree. Ugly, but so beautiful. This tree on Calvary was the instrument that God used to usher in the age of salvation and new life. The cross completed the work. If you're living, loved ones, in the failures of yesterday, last Friday, last week, you're not moving forward in the life of Jesus Christ. You're missing the good news of the gospel. Are you catching a theme here? Let me close with one more reading. And now the Grinch with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. He's talking about Christmas. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little... It does. As your pastor, can I encourage you, enjoy the symbol, but never, ever lose sight that perhaps Christmas is a little bit. It's all about Jesus. Oh, one last symbol, if I may. On your table there is a communion. I would like for you to take it, pull it out, and just uh, uh, there's a little top that you'll need to. There's a little top there that you, there's two layers. Take out the little bread if you will. This is the ultimate symbol of what Jesus did for us. 
For he came and he said, I am the bread of life. That's what his life brought to us, just daily sustenance spiritually to live and to be alive. And I never want us to forget that our ultimate life comes from him. Our ultimate identity in life is found in him. Oh, he never promises a rose garden. He didn't get it. But he promises his presence to go through whatever 